good to see everybody. No response right now, right now to this, because I'm not asking this for a response, but who right now is fired up about getting into God's Word? Don't respond. Okay, if you're new to Crossroads, I just want to say um, we take God's Word very seriously. And this is our time during the week where as a community we're going to feast on it. It's not a little chicken soup for the soul that you're going to get. I had to do a funeral yesterday. And that's what they wanted me to, to give in, in this moment to make sense of the loss of a loved one. It was a little chicken, chicken noodle soup. <laughs> I don't know why I put noodle in there. <laughs> that's what it feels like. But this is God's word. If it goes over your head today, that's okay. You can read it yourself. You can do the work of understanding it. Um, and, and, and we believe that. I don't want to make a mockery of God's word. I don't want to make a mockery or insult you to think that you can't read it and understand it for yourself. And I don't want to make a mockery of this moment that God cannot do something incredible in our hearts and lives through it. God, speak to us this morning. We are hungry and we are desperate for you, whether we know it or not. Amen. Okay. By the way, too, here's another thing. If you think you're going to a church that's churchy, you're wrong. You are in the locker room right now. And the locker room is important, okay? It's not the playing field. But if we're going to be on the playing field, we need time in the locker room. And uh, right now it's that time for the family to be in the living room, the team to be huddled around each other. Okay, we're looking at the life of David. And I've been given three chapters. It's always a tall task to try to preach three chapters, but they really have one theme. 1 Samuel 24 through 26. Let me start with some context. David is is in the desert, running for his life from Saul, who's the king. In fact, Saul is so desperate to kill and destroy David that he's putting Israel's national security at risk at a time when Philistines are invading. Saul takes his elite special forces to track down David in the desert. And it's because Saul at this point has become a madman. He is consumed with jealous hatred towards David. We all have Saul's in our life. Haters. People who are out to wrong us, to get us, to destroy us, defame us, wrong us, hurt us. How do we respond? That's what this text is about. For Samuel 24 and 26, obviously our book ends to chapter 25. Chapter 25 holds the jewel of this whole text, which we'll get to. That's just to whet your appetite. But in 1 Samuel 24 and 26, you essentially have the same story. Saul is closing in on David with his elite forces about to kill him. And each time in this amazing twist of events, 
David is given the opportunity to take out Saul. That's what 1 Samuel 24 and 26 are about. 1 Samuel 24, 1 through 16. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told that David is in the desert of En So Saul took 3,000 of his best men from all of Israel, and he set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. Of course, that's what's in this desert. That's where the sheep and the shepherd are. This is where they do life. And a cave was there. Saul went in to relieve himself. Very interesting. Literally says to uncover his feet, which is a euphemism for to relieve himself. (laughs) David and his men happened to be far back in the cave. David's men said, this is the day where God has spoken. You just got a word from the Lord. I will give your enemies into your hands for you deal with this man as you wish. Literally, a little word from God they heard. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was guilt-ridden for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my king, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. Imagine how badly they wanted to kill him. Saul left the cave, went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen to your men when they say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some even urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you. You are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers comes evil. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom the king of Israel has come out. Who are you pursuing, Saul? A dead dog, a flea, my goodness. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me. From your hand. It's quite a speech. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, my son? And he wept aloud. This is God's word. You can be seated. This event happens in one of my favorite places in the whole world, a place where I'm going to be actually uh, two weeks from today. Uh, I'm getting off... uh, playing in Tel Aviv, uh, and before the next group of people um, that I will be leading through the land to tell God's story, I'm spending two days in the desert in En I I, I love this place. Uh, Let me just show you 
uh, what it looks like. It's a beautiful part of uh, the Judean wilderness. Does that look fun to you or not? Okay, this is Engedi. Now let me take you deeper into Engedi. This is where David and his men are hiding. You don't think that's a great spot? Again, David's a shepherd. He knows every nook and cranny of this desert. Go deeper into it yet? Get thirsty in the desert, and it's where Maim Kaim flows, living water out of the desert. Let me also show you one more picture. It's littered, littered with hundreds of these caves. And the, the, the reason why I, I, I say that and show you that is because think about the coincidence that of all the caves are, that are in this region that King Saul comes walk, walking into the, the one where David and some of his men are to go to the bathroom, to put himself in that vulnerable situation, position, unattended to, squatting over with David right there to take matters into his own hands. I want you to know the temptation that David's, David is experiencing. Put yourself in David's shoes. Here is the guy who has ruined your life. Here is the guy who's trying to kill you. Here is, this, is the guy who has put your life in this prison, who has stripped you of all your good things, your wife, your family, your home, your job, where every day you're wondering if you're going to live to see tomorrow. And then David's men say, can you believe this? God has spoken. Here he is. Pick up your sword, David. How often do we think God has spoken when he really hasn't? How often do we read the tea leaves and say, well, because of all, all, all that is before me, God is telling me to do this, or God is telling me to, th- to do this. Rod, God gave a special word to me to leave my husband. God gave me a word to leave my job. God gave me a word to quit school. David doesn't fall prey to this temptation. Even though this guy has completely ruined his life, with one thrust of the sword, his life can go back to to normal. And yet in this moment, David spares Saul. He spares Saul's life. He doesn't repay evil for evil. Now David does do something pretty creative here. He cuts off a piece of his garment. And I always wondered, David, what's, what's the big deal about just, you know, putting a little hole in, in, in Saul's shirt? But then I learned uh, later in life the, the thing that David actually cut. What, what David cut off of Saul's robe is, is what's called the kanaf. The kanaf in Hebrew is either uh, corner or wing. And in Numbers 15, God instructs his people... 
when they're in the desert, before they're to enter the land, he says, I want every man, young and old, I don't care how old they are, to wear tassels. I want them to put these tassels on the corner, on on the wing of their garment. And he says, I don't care if you're a king or a slave. I don't care if it's rain or or shine, if it's war or peace. You put this on, on your robe. And then God spells out the reason why. It's because Israel's married to God, and, and these tassels really for, for the men are like them wearing their wedding ring. If I think I have one in my pocket here. Oh man, what if I don't? I don't. <laughs> I thought I did. Um, I, I, I actually thought I had a t- tassel in my pocket. I left it at home like Dan left things at home last week. Um, the tassel itself uh, has five knots. The five represents what? Torah. Torah to us, we translate law. But to an Israelite, the, the Torah are the wedding vows to God. Um, between the five knots, obviously, are four spaces. The four spaces represent God's name, yod heh vav Then there's a blue thread that runs through it. Blue is the color in that world, in the ancient world. Blue is the color of royalty. This is what they are. They are bride to the king of kings. And it's also what the priest wore. So it speaks to their mission in this world. Every Israelite man is to be a priest. Is to put God on display to show the world what God is like. And so what these tassels did is it reminded them who they are, what they're called to be, that we are a people that belong to God, that we actually wear God's name, and that we're called to partner with him in the world he loves. And because the basic definition of husband is is protector, putting these tassels on uh, for a Hebrew man was literally not just putting on God's name, not just putting on what they're called to be, but it was literally putting on God's protection, God's authority. In fact, there was a time in my life when I got back from Israel that I I, I started wearing tassels because I read the text and God said, "God's, God's people shall wear these forever. I stopped because some of you got a little offended by it and said it was a little too Jewish, so I respected that. But I'll tell you something. It was a powerful thing every day to put on your identity, to wear it, to put on God's name, to put on God's authority, to wear his protection. And see, in 1 Samuel 15, if you go back to that part of the story, after Saul, Samuel tells Saul that God has rejected him as king, uh, Saul does something very interesting. He tears off Samuel's corner, his tassels. In doing so, he's saying to Samuel, Samuel, you cannot be acting within God's authority right now telling me this. And Samuel then looks at Saul and says, well, you just broke your relationship off with God in the way that you have acted. You have disobeyed. You are no longer part of the marriage. In fact, he says, uh, your authority, your protection, it's torn from you just like you tore my tassels, Saul. So when David tears Saul's, uh, Saul's tassels, what he's saying is the same thing. Saul, you're no longer belonging to God because if you belong to God, you won't be doing this to me. 
And so, snip. You no longer have God's authority, God's protection. You're no longer a part of God because you've disobeyed him. Now, David, after he does this, though, is literally cut to the heart. Because he knows he just did something that he's not supposed to do. He just played God. He just played the role of judge. Look at what he says in verse 12. And here he's talking to Saul. He said, may the Lord judge between you and me. This isn't mine to do. May the Lord do it. May the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done. I have no right to avenge. And this is what I love about David. David, whenever he is cut to the heart, he quickly repents. Um, In fact, in verse 7, not only does he repent, but he rebukes his men and calls them to repent as well. And if you want to know a big difference between Saul and David, because both of these guys have enormous failures in their life. Both of them sin greatly. Saul might feel remorseful and regret, but is too proud to repent. David, because he's humble, repents. You repent often, are you too proud? So Saul finishes his business, gets a safe distance away from David. And now I want you to see the humility of David. Look at verse 8. Then David went out of the cave and he called out to Saul, My, my Lord, the king. And after he addresses Saul this way, he then bows his face to the ground and then explains to Saul, Saul, do you see how God just led you into my hands where I could have done anything to you as I pleased? In fact, he then calls him my father, but my father, I spared you. I I offered you compassion and mercy. And this is what David does. He spares Saul. He repays Saul's evil with good, with compassion and kindness. If you're still looking for a reason why God calls David, it's not Samuel who calls David this, it's not David who calls himself this, but God calls David this. Here is a man after my own heart. Here it is. Compassion, mercy, not repaying evil with evil, but repaying evil with good, forgiving sins. Sparing Saul. 1 Samuel 26, you can read it sometime. You're going to see it's almost essentially the same story, but a second time. Except this time, there's just a little bit of a twist. Uh, David becomes the aggressor this time. David this time sneaks into Saul's camp in the middle of the night. There he sees Saul with the spear driven in the ground right next to his head. Because that is who Saul is. You can't understand Saul without his spear. It's like a pacifier. It's like a binky. (laughs) So I love it. David takes Saul's spear, which is the symbol of everything that Saul has become. 
I mean, Saul, like every man, is riddled with insecurity and feelings of inadequacy. But the way that he compensates for these insecurities is with his spear. So really, when David takes his spear, he's confronting Saul. Saul, is, is, is this really who you are? Is this really all that you have become? That you are a man reduced to a spear? That your whole worth as a person is this spear? Your significance is wrapped into this spear? That the way that you deal with all your problems in life is with this spear? Well, what happens, Saul, if I take your spear away? Who are you now? Amen. let me ask you that question. I don't know what your spear is, but what happens when it's taken away? Who are you? What is your spear? What happens if your bank account right now was ripped away? What about your job right now if it was taken from you? Your accomplishments, your reputation... Is this really what we as men have been reduced to? I think it is. And women, you too, what what happens when your spirit is taken away? When things important to you are ripped out? When your beauty begins to fade? When certain relationships go south? When dreams are shattered? Who are you? See, we found out two weeks ago who David is, that when every crotch in his life is ripped out of his possession, that he is still a man who passionately seeks God. He's a person who finds his identity in God. He's a person who is satisfied with God. Are you Saul? Are you David? It's an important question to ask as we're studying this story. Now let's look at the reason why David doesn't avenge Saul. The, the, the reason why anyone doesn't avenge someone is usually because of forgiveness. I want you to just hear God's word, especially in texts that we are more comfortable with, like Romans, especially the 12th chapter. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Live in harmony with one another. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, says God, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Because in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. Do not repay evil for evil, but overcome evil for good, with good. Does that describe you? Does that describe us? Does that describe our lives? Does that describe our reputation in the world? 
I love this. It says, when you do this, you will heap burning coals on their head. And I always wondered, whoa, whoa, let's do this so we can just like heap all this, this, this burn on, on, on the people that hurt us. Until I learned that the first usage of burning coals, which is an important thing in the Bible, it, it, it sets the definition for terms. The first usage of, of, of burning coals is in Genesis 15. And, and in this text, burning coals symbolizes God. Because it's in this chapter where God enters a covenant with Abraham. God comes down and his presence when he comes down is symbolized by smoke and burning coals. And then you fast forward further into the story. When the Israelites are leaving Egypt, God again shows up symbolized in these pictures. Burning coals. Smoke by day, fire by night. To protect his people. So burning coals is God's protection. It's God's presence. So let's read Romans 12 again. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Because in doing this, you will heap upon them the presence and protection of Almighty God. And the Lord will reward you. See, this is why forgiveness is a big deal. It is the most potent force in our world today. When you forgive someone, you first heal your own heart. And when you forgive others, you are giving those people the opportunity to experience the presence of God and God's protection and see their heart healed. Look at Saul. Saul at this point has become Satan-like. Trying to take out the Lord's anointed. But in verse 16, when he sees the grace and mercy of David, all he can do is weep. Because in this moment, uh, David's forgiveness has, has cut Saul to the heart. And, and he's so close to having his heart changed by this. But all he gets to is regret and remorse. And then he quickly goes back to being the proud Satan-like character he is in the rest of the story. You know, we all have our accusers. We have our haters. We have our enemies. We have people in our life who have wronged us. How do we respond to them? How do you respond to someone when they mistreat you? How do you respond to those who have hurt you, injured you, or, or maybe even abused you? Are you a place of forgiveness? Or are you bitter? Are you angry? Are you critical? Are, are you always finding ways to get even with that person? Do you harbor grudges? If we are to be like, when the Bible says David is a man after God's own heart, don't just say, think about what that says about David, but think about what that says about God through David. 
Because over and over again, the Bible speaks about God's heart. His heart is one of mercy and grace and compassion, slow to anger, abounding in has said in loving kindness. While David is a man after God's own heart, chapter 25, read the story, he's just a man. Because he has uh, gone about doing something really great for one of his neighbors, Nabal. Um, he protects Nabal with his 600 men and all Nabal's assets. Uh, Nabal is a shepherd with, with, with hundreds of sheep. And, 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 and they're in that ancient world, Amalekites and thugs and gangs would, would, would rob and pillage and, and do all that kind of stuff. In fact, I can confidently say that David and his men risked their life to protect Nabal. And so David just automatically expects to be repaid good for his good. Just, hey, a small tip will do, Nabal. Just tip me. Nabal says, who's David? And that's the question at hand, isn't it? Who is David? Like, in one story... This man after God's own heart was someone who's trying to kill him day after day and he spares his life. But in the next moment, something sets him off and he literally says to his men, men, pick up your swords, let's go. Let's take them out. Do you know the cost of this in David's life, what it would have been if he did this? Let me put it on you. Do you know the cost of not forgiving people that have hurt you? I hear it all the time. Things like, we used to be close, but we haven't talked in years. I wouldn't dread the holidays so much if she wasn't there. I will disown that person to the day I die. I don't know how I could ever forgive that person, let alone forget it. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, because in every family, every church, every work group, unforgiveness robs good people of good relationships. Husbands wound their wives. Children lash out against their parents. Parents abuse their children. Pastors injure church members. Teachers uh, hurt their students. Coaches unfairly treat their players. I mean, this list goes on and on and on. And to not forgive in the moment of our hurt will turn a person into Saul. You will start to become very Satan-like. Where you're consumed with, with all this poison of, of, of anger and rage and bitterness and jealousy. And that will turn into vengeance. Which sadly, I think, is what makes our world turn right now. And see, what David is in chapter 25 is he is in danger of becoming like Saul. Because just like that, he snaps, and in that moment, he is going to enact revenge, vengeance, on this character Nabal. Now, I want to just throw Jesus and his words into this right now. Because he doesn't mess around with this, uh, this thing of unforgiveness. He says, 
to not forgive someone will cost a person God. It will cost them eternal life. Read the Sermon on the Mount. That's pretty much what he says. So what is forgiveness? What does it mean to forgive someone? And then, and then how, I, how do we do it? That's what I want to end with today. Because I think so many people confuse forgiveness with forgetting. They just think forgiveness is the act of sweeping the offense under the carpet as if it never happened. That's forgiveness. That is not forgiveness. Let's just say I let you borrow my car. You take it out, and you smash it (laughs) really good. Now, someone has to pay to fix that car. I can't just look at that car and say, well, there's nothing wrong with it, even though I'm very good at that (laughs) when there's something wrong with my car. Oh, there's nothing wrong with it. I don't hear that noise. Uh, Someone has to fix it. So either you pay or I pay. To forgive means that I pay. It means that I release you from the debt that you owe me due to the damage you did to my car. And see, now apply this to life and relationships. Because any time that we are wronged or damaged or injured, a debt is incurred and someone has to pay. It's why the Bible over and over again, when it talks about forgiveness, talks about it in terms of debt. Because every time we sin, every time we make a mistake, someone or something in God's good creation is hurt. And someone has to pay for that. And we've all been hurt. We've all been wronged. We've all been injured. There's two ways to deal with it. One way is you can make the person pay for hurting you. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. We call that payback. In the Bible, it's called eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And we can get really good at devising all kinds of creative ways to pay that person back until we feel that that is paid. That's where most people live. Another way to deal with the hurt is you can forgive. And to forgive means that instead of making that other person pay, you decide to pay it yourself by releasing them from the debt that they owed you due to the hurt, and you absorb that that debt, that hurt, into you. Because either I pay or they pay. But if I pay, I have to absorb it. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer said all forgiveness is suffering because it feels like a kind of death when we forgive. Because with any wrong or injury or harm, someone has to pay. And why do you think the Psalms then are, are, are full of all this lament and pouring out of this raw emotion, this grief, sadness, anger, bitterness, despair? Because so many of the Psalms are written at this season in David's life when David's life is in a desert, including when he has to forgive Saul. 
See, and what the Psalms do is, is, is they teach us to pray. They especially teach us how, how to pray in our desert, how to pray when we're called to forgive. Because to forgive someone hurts. And there's all kinds of emotions that are involved when we actually do the real deal of forgiveness. Bitterness, anger, despair. And whether you know this or not, God is perfectly fine with these emotions. He knows what it costs a person to forgive. Which is why Jesus, when he became God in the flesh, prayed the Psalms. They were there for him because God says, I want you to pray your sadness. I want you to pray your tears. I want you to pray your despair. I want you to pray your hurt. Because what the Psalms also do is they teach us how to turn our, our, our pain into praise to God. How, how to turn our hurt into halal, hallelujah. Now, in fairness to David, this, this Nabal character, character is, the Bible describes him as an egotistical buffoon. In fact, his name means Fool. Fool in the Bible is a self-deceived person who cannot see their buffoonery. That's what a fool is. This is what Saul has become, and it's what David is in danger of becoming. That is a great spot for that little scream and yell. (laughs) David becomes a fool is about to become a fool, except for the hero of this whole chunk of scripture. Nabal has a wife named Abigail. She is a beautiful picture. She is a woman after God's own heart. When she hears that David and his men are coming to repay Nabal's evil with more evil, look at verse 18 of 25. Let's just turn there. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seas of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisin, raisins, and 200 raisins, raisin cakes to press figs. Oh, my goodness. She pays back David and his men more than they deserve, but she comes with a feast. And in the ancient world, the feast is how you do reconciliation. Psalm 23, you prepare a feast before me in the presence of my enemies. Uh, The Lord's table is that kind of feast. It's a feast of reconciliation. Here she comes with with, with a whole feast, a whole tray of goodies. And then I want you to start to feel the drama of what's going to happen. Verse 20, as she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her and they met them. And David had just said, it's been useless. All my watching's over this fool's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for my good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of everything that belongs to him. David's ticked. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David... She quickly got off her donkey. She bowed down before David with her face to the ground. You think David in that moment is remembering how far he's fallen, how proud he's become? 
She fell at his feet and she said, pardon your servant. Literally in the Hebrew, this is what she says to David. Let all the guilt fall on me. Did you hear that? Let all the guilt of my foolish husband fall on me. She is absorbing the debt of her husband's sin. She's taking it all upon herself. And when you get to verses 32 and 33, you see it just stops David in his tracks and it cuts him to the heart. And he says, praise be to you, O Lord, that you sent this woman to me to change me and cause my heart to repent. See, here is a woman after God's own heart because if you want to know the heart of God, it's this. God is a God. He looks at our world. He looks at all the injustice, the hatred, the wars, the violence, the rapes, the violations that occur, and he gets on his donkey and he enters it. And he absorbs it. All the wrongs. All the hurts. All the injustices. May it all be on me. And see, people ask me all the time. They say, you know, I know what I need to do. I, I, I know I need to forgive this person. And to forgive this person, I know I need to name the name of the person. I, na- I need to name the specific hurt of what they've done to me. But, but how do I get the resources to actually do it? That's the right question. It's not just knowing what we have to do, but how do we do it? And I'll tell you right now, it starts with Humility. Proud people can't forgive. Because proud people innately think, I would never do what Nabal did to me. I would never do what my boss did to me. I would never be capable of doing what my spouse did to me. I'd never do what my mom and dad did to me. I could never do that. I'm telling you, that's pride. Unless you know you are a sinner, saved by grace, capable of doing anything and everything under the sun, you will never be able to forgive. But now this task just got harder. See, what we don't need now is three steps to do it. We don't need a specific how-to. What we need is a power, for a power to come into our lives, to change us from the inside out, to melt our hearts and humble us to the ground. Do you know what a debtor you are? Can you see your sin, and not just your sin, but the hurt that that's caused our world and other people? Can you see your mistakes and your failures and admit to them, and not just them, but see the scars 
that they've put in other people. Because if you can't do that, the Bible calls you a fool. You are too self-deceived to see who you really are and the effect that you've had on others. And Christ didn't come to the world to die for self-righteous fools. He came to die for sinners. And when you see what you are, and you see what God did for you, how he came to this world, and how he absorbed in himself all the wrongs, all the hurts, all the injustices, all our mistakes, all our sins into himself. He did that for you because he absolutely loves you that much. He took your sin, he took my sin, and he paid the debt, all of it. And see, unless you can see that, and that burns in your heart, you'll never have the power to forgive. But when your eyes are open to see that, it will burn in you, and I'm not exaggerating at all to say this, it will be a joy to pay forward the grace that Christ gave to you. This morning, we have the communion table just, just for this person. It'll be just a few of you. It's not going to be many of you. But some of you are in the place of unforgiveness with someone in this room. And if God's putting his finger on your heart today to respond to his word... Some of you need to leave right now and go find that person, but some of you are in the room with that person. I'm telling you where you take it. You take it to the cross. You take it to this reconciliatory, this, this meal of reconciliation, and you come, and you get low, and you humble yourself to the person that you've hurt and the person who has hurt you, and you humble yourself before God, and you take in his grace. It's real food. It's real power. It'll change you. And God, this morning, I want to be a people who are cut to the heart. God, that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but that we'd be doers of your word. God, that as you are putting specific names of people on our minds and on our hearts, of people we need to move towards and, and pursue and, and, and bow low and make ourselves small and humble ourselves before And say, I'm sorry, I blew it. God, would you shepherd us in this? We want to be a Romans 12 church. We want to be a church that blesses those who persecute us and we do not curse them. We want to be a church that, that really knows how to live in harmony with one another. We want to be a church that does not repay anyone evil for evil. We want to be a church that does not take revenge. But we want to be a church, too, that if our enemy is hungry, we're going to feed them. And if he is thirsty, we're going to give him something to drink. Because in doing this, we will heap God upon them. Help us.
change us, melt our hearts. In Jesus' name.